Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, just a quick reminder, the Other People podcast is free. Every single episode is free. Almost 500 episodes and counting, free. There's an official Other People app. That is free. Everything's free. This is a listener-supported program. If you would like to throw a couple dollars in the hat, I would appreciate that. You can do it at other people, or what is it called? Patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Patreon.com slash other PPL pod. You can also donate via PayPal. If that is your preference, there's a PayPal link in the sidebar at the show's official website. That's other PPL.com. All right? Okay. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jake, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Welcome to the Other People (laughs) Podcast. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles, California. It's good to be with you. Thank you. It's good to be back after a week off last week. It wasn't really uh, intentional or uh, planned to have a week off. I was up in Minnesota with uh, my wife and my kids visiting my wife's family. Uh, Her father, my father-in-law, passed away uh, last week. Uh, Daryl Dean a very good man and a very sad loss for our family. And I just wanted to say uh, a couple things, you know, I I think first of all, you know, obviously you guys uh, did not know my father-in-law, but I've, uh, I I might've described him a couple of times on this show in conversation. The way that I often describe my father-in-law is that he's a man who's incapable of raising his voice, like literally and temperamentally. He's one of these people who could not yell, could not raise his voice, or at least just was in uh, such control somehow that he never did. And that's not just me talking. That's, I mean, my wife has told me this. The man's not a yeller, which uh, I admire greatly because I don't have nearly that level of self-control or the level of patience. That's the thing about him. He's an infinitely patient person. And my wife has some of that which I think is uh, part of the reason why uh, I asked her to marry me. <laughs> um, but it's, just, it's a very admirable quality, patience. It's a very admirable quality to be in control of oneself. 
and to speak softly. And the other thing that uh, his loss uh, brings to mind is the way that people come into relief uh, when they are absent. And the way you realize uh, when a person dies, just how much of an impact they had on you. And, and for some reason, it's elusive when they're here. It's like you've been or like in a neighborhood or, or somewhere where there's like this big tree and then something happens to the tree and then suddenly someone, you know, someday uh, the, the city comes out and cuts it down and that tree's no longer there. And it's just, you know, you, you really recognize that empty space. It's sort of like that. And, and I've felt this and I've experienced this before. It seems to happen with every, uh, with the loss of every person close to me where you just realize, especially in the, in the days immediately following the loss just how much of an impact they had on you. Even if you didn't, uh, you know, see them all that often, or even if you didn't talk to them every day, people have an impact on one another. That's what it reminds me of. So I just want to salute my father-in-law, Daryl Dean. Uh, we'll really miss you and thank you uh, for all that you, uh, gave to our family, certainly for raising, uh, such a fine family, uh, my, my wife and her brother and, uh, of, of course, uh, my mother-in-law, not that he raised her, but you know what I mean? He's a great husband to her. They celebrated 50 years of marriage this year, which is, uh, an awesome achievement. So that's why the podcast was off last, uh, was off last week. I, I tweeted about it. I don't do a good job of letting people know when there's not an episode. So if you wondered where I went, if you thought that I had been abducted by aliens or that I had, uh, fled to, uh, the South Pacific or something, that's where I was. And now I'm back and I have Jared Yates Sexton on the program. Uh, let's just get to that without too much more preamble. Uh, the book again, is called The People Are Going to Rise Like the Waters Upon Your Shore, available now from Counterpoint Press. This is Jared Yates Sexton. Most of my family are factory workers, laborers. Um, you know, there's some coal miners in there too. Um, you know, I, I had a dad who ended up opening his own small business, but it fell apart after, um, you know, he had these medical problems. I had a mom who, um, worked in a factory for most of her life or was a waitress for most of her life. Um, I came from a family that is very different from the people I'm around now. Obviously I'm in the Academy. I'm around a lot of people. Well, everybody has higher education. Um, I don't, always know how I necessarily got here. And I feel very strange. I think one of those things that people suffer from, especially when they quote unquote get out is they don't always feel comfortable anywhere, right? Like I, I'm sort of an outlier when I go home, I'm an outlier while I'm in the academy. And so I always feel kind of very strange about that. But the, the only thing that I know is that I was able to um, get out because I was given a work ethic that um, my family had. So for instance, um, I write pretty much every day. I, I sit at my desk pretty much every day for at least like four or five hours because I'm not clocking in at a factory, 
right? The least I can do is sit down with a document and work on it or edit it or spend some time reading or whatever, because I'm not going in and breaking my bones and breaking my back. So I've gotten a, a really good work ethic from my family and, and quite frankly, a lot of shame because I'm not in a factory because I am doing this sort of, um, you know, white collar labor. So I, I, I think it's a combination of those two things, which helps me do things. But it also, again, just leads to this like terrible self-doubt and crippling anxiety. So what does your family think of the work that you do? <sighs> That's a great question. Um, you know, in terms of my fiction, um, I, I think they kind of dug it because a lot of it is about, um, you know, working class people. And so they would read it and they'd be like, these are actually stories I understand. And I'm like, that's that's perfect with my political writing. It's been a little bit different because, quite frankly, most of them are Trump supporters. Most of them are sort of under the influence of this stuff. So, you know, I, I, I went home. Um, it would have been last summer and this was after I was covering the Trump rallies and stuff and I was getting all these death threats from neo-Nazis and Trump supporters who were trying to, um, you know, showed up at my house in the middle of the night or they were trying to get me fired and I would go home and my family would have like Trump pence signs up in their yards and, you know, in the past I think they would have been like, you know, this is, this is crap, you know, they're, they're going after one of my own but, it didn't change at that point. They, they, they weren't going to change their support or whatever. And they just kind of looked at me strangely because I think sometimes they're not sure how I ended up where I am. You know, we have these uh, political and reality bubbles now where we don't understand why people come to the places where they are. And so I think they're, I think they're a little confused by me now, and I, I, I think that um, it's opened up a little bit of a gap. Okay, but that's what I was going to say. Like, how do you? Because this is a big question for people. I think there are a lot of us out here who have friends or friends of friends or family members who voted for Trump, and we couldn't be more uh, disparate in our political views. And it, it's really, I mean, and that there's always a tension when that kind of thing happens. But I think that it's especially acute with this presidency because it is so repugnant and toxic, uh, at least from, you know, from my, my view of things. And, you know, how do you process when a parent or a sibling or a neighbor has this, and, and these can be people who are educated, uneducated. It's not exclusive to people in blue collar or working class towns that have been blighted by, um, you know, uh, corporations or the removal of coal, uh, coal mines or whatever like this, this runs the gamut in America, um, up and down the, the socioeconomic ladder. It may have greater intensity in certain areas, but you know, it can happen anywhere. And uh, like, it's a big question for me. Like, how do you process people who are throwing their support behind a guy who doesn't have a problem with (laughs) neo-Nazis? Well, yeah, and that's one of the largest questions, and and unfortunately, I I, I think it's a very large answer, and and we're not really good at large answers anymore. We're you know we're better at at, at short guttural answers. Um, I think on one hand, what we're seeing is a mass change in terms of how our society functions, and you know I've been I've been reading a lot of stuff about how culture and, and society has changed. Um, Francis Fukuyama, I believe it's the origins of political order talks about you know we started around a fire and then eventually it became the family and and i think we're moving away from the family i think familial bonds particularly in the era of the internet and uh mass media and social media i think we're seeing those bonds change i think we're seeing people who can interact with others who 
believe the same things that they do and share a worldview that they do, they're moving to others like themselves as opposed to staying with their families. I think we're seeing the familial bond change. And I I don't think we're going to wrap our heads around that for a long, long time. But I will say that I think and, and this is my hope. This is this is what my deep, sincere, optimistic hope is, because, quite frankly, the the ascension of Donald Trump has has made me fight pessimism. I, I, I used to be a cynic and now I have to hold on to some piece of optimism and the piece of optimism that I'm holding on to for dear life is that if we can take care of the underlying problems that some of these people aren't even aware of, if we can make a better economy, if we can have people be able to put more skin in the game and and, and actually be able to sort of like close the gap between the haves and the have-nots, my sincere hope is that the the symptoms of that disease will go away when we treat the disease. And if we can get rid of those things, perhaps we can we can somehow or another depolarize this country or we can get rid of, of these forces that are, um, you know, pushing us apart. And, and again, that's the optimistic part of me. And, and I hope that this is all because of that 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 problem that that division comes from the problem and if and if we can take care of it maybe it'll get better but again there's the other part that i look at this and i'm like maybe our society is just changing and what we're seeing right now is just a a period of of revolution yeah i mean and it's like how do you relate uh technology to it all i mean i can see myself sometimes thinking that social media allows for you know dialogue and you can get information moving up and down the chain uh, faster than ever before. But then there's also this compartmentalization issue where people just follow other people like them and they just friend other people who share their beliefs. And so it has this bubbling effect and it has this reality distortion effect or or basically um, you can just have your own reality. And I, I guess, but when I chew on it, I think to myself, like, uh, it's got to be a long, it's a long game. We have to, we have to educate people better. There has to be better education. I think to live in this media environment, you have to have pretty decent critical thinking skills. And I don't mean to say that as a person who feels like his are super uh, great, I, I feel like mine always need to be sharpened. It's a challenge to drink from this fire hose. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, it's, this is where it gets like really, really hard because again, it's a multifaceted problem. I mean, you know, we we have all of these things wrong in this country. You know, we have we have education that's under assault. We're constantly having uh, teachers basically punished for choosing their profession. They're not they're not rewarding people for going in and doing this public good. And, you know, we're having colleges that are moving more towards being, um, you know, job training as opposed to um, citizen training or, or person training or, or mind training, which sounds bad. I feel like that's going to get wrapped around by some sort of right wing propagandist. That sounds bad. Um, but, you know, we, we, we don't take care of those things that would lead to a better world. And at the same time, it's also very, very difficult. So I talk in the book uh, a little about this, which is in the past, speaking of family, um, you know, like if I was back in Linton with my family, every time that they say something that's racist, homophobic or misogynistic or xenophobic, I would, I would say something to them. I would say that's not okay. Or I would correct them or I would offer some sort of a rebuttal. Well, now I'm not doing that on Facebook. 
right? Because that automatically leads to a giant fight. Um, most people are blocking people. They're unfriending people. They're getting rid of these people that they used to be a modulating voice for. But it's also not my place to tell people that they have to, you know, wade in and do this war with people, particularly populations that are very vulnerable. That's not their job. They don't need to to put themselves on the line and suffer this sort of mental stress. So we're sort of at a stalemate. Where we used to have modulation, where we used to have conversation, we don't we don't have that anymore. We now have an online world that now reflects the real world and affects it. And and we now have this, you know, battleground of the idea ideals where we're not even talking to one another anymore. And and I wish that we could get there, but I'm not sure how we do it. So how many times have you seen Donald Trump in person? Uh, let me see. That's probably somewhere in the area of like seven, eight, nine, ten, somewhere in there. What's that like? Uh, awful, quite frankly. Um, I, I, I mean that, that, that's a simplification, but, but quite frankly, I mean, um, you know, I, I assume you talk to writers all the time and, you know, you're talking about characters and you're talking about like, you know, Nearly every character needs redeemable qualities, but this person is the embodiment of everything that's wrong with America. It's unchecked greed. It's unchecked self. It's unchecked misogyny. It's unchecked racism. It is just being in the same room with him and particularly seeing the power he has over a crowd because what he does is he will go up on stage and he just his his speech is just terrible it, it meanders particularly when he's not on a teleprompter it meanders it it goes into so many realms of the wrong and not only does he excite people but he has this amazing ability to start to say something that would ruin him right he's seconds away from saying like a racial or misogynistic slur and he stops but the audience is on the same wavelength as him. So what you see happen in the crowd is a ripple of recognition among them, and it brings out the worst in them. They say these awful things that he has tiptoed up to. Like saying what? Himself. Like what? Like what? Uh, I mean, I mean, you know, it's it's like any time that he mentions Barack Obama, and he'll start to sort of talk about otherness all of a sudden you start hearing around you all these racial slurs you start hearing all of the rumors you know uh one of the first things i heard was in a greensboro rally where uh the entire rally was after the uh the nightclub shooting in in orlando which was uh, i believe the pulse shooting which is where it was a gay nightclub that had been shot up and he he sort of talked about it and he was sort of manipulating it and all you kept hearing in the crowd was like the gays had it coming um, Hillary Clinton, every time he would start to talk about her, the audience would suddenly start talking about hanging her or, you know, they would start using this language or that language. And it, it just inspires this incredible ugliness in people. And to watch that at, at, at play in person in the present is is horrifying because you start having to face the possibility that there is some inherent ugliness and, and evil in some people. And, and it's so much easier to think that than to suddenly start thinking about the factors that led to it. And, and he has this incredible ability to bring that out in people and, and to see it in person is, is just terrible. Oh and do you hear people scream the N word at his rallies? Oh yeah. All the time. I mean, I, I've, I, I lost count of how many times I'd heard that. And, and, you know, at some point or another, you start watching people not just saying it, but you start seeing the reactions to it. And, you know, you wait 
because you want to see somebody in the crowd just step step up and say that's not okay but what happens is they feed off of each other and so if one person says it it spreads to another person and then eventually it starts like growing right people start like feeling comfortable being around each other they start enjoying the fact that they can say things that are terrible and inappropriate, but they're not going to get punished because, you know, they live in a society that punishes this stuff. Well, it used to um, when you say it out loud and they start realizing that they can do it. And it's almost like kids realizing that they know a new curse word and and they start just beating off of each other. And so like somebody takes that initial step, Trump leads them to it. Someone takes the step and suddenly the crowd's in on it. Good God. So, uh, how many, how many months, like weeks, months did you cover this? When did you, when did you start again? So I started, uh, covering this thing in person in the summer of 2015. That's a long time. So you were, you were in early and when did it dawn on you that this was going to be uh, potentially a winning campaign? Like, when did you get the sense that like the, the guy might actually do it? Well, the moment, uh, again, this goes back to uh, December 7th, 2015, um, when I was walking out, it, it was held on board of the USS Yorktown in South Carolina, and it was after he announced the, the Muslim ban. I was walking out, and suddenly I realized that I hadn't seen energy or momentum behind anybody the way I had with Trump. Obviously, um there was a cause there, you know, later on he called it the movement and I, I followed people outside and I watched this group of, of Trump supporters, uh, square off against a group of protesters and they were threatening them. They were talking about going back to their cars and getting guns and shooting them. One guy pulled me aside and basically told me that he wanted to mow down every protester. And I suddenly realized that this was an equal reaction to uh, progressivism. This was regressivism, I guess you would call it. Um, and I suddenly realized that if things fell apart, if something went really, really wrong, he could win. And of course, for a long time, um, I think a lot of us were in denial. Um, I saw signs everywhere. So for instance, um, the Trump campaign was very bad at doing small things. They were very bad at like calling local offices and getting, you know, people out to get, knock on doors. They were particularly bad about getting yard signs out to people, which sounds so dumb and minuscule, but it's like one of those like you got to pay the light bill or else the lights don't come on. Right. And all of a sudden, you know, I, I started talking to these people in the Trump campaign um, who were sources of mine who were like, well, we're not getting yard signs out. So if that tells you anything. But then I started noticing something. I started noticing that people around the country were making their own Trump signs. And even though the campaign wasn't getting the signs out to people, people were putting up plywood that they would just spray paint Trump on. You would see a truck that somebody had just like painted Trump on the side of it. You would go into a bathroom and you would see the graffiti along with like swastikas and racial slurs. You would just see Trump graffiti all over the place. So what it actually was is that it wasn't that Trump was a great candidate or that he was the best leader of a campaign it happened to be that this was a, a this was a groundswell operation this actually started from the bottom up and they had been waiting for someone like trump and that was like one of the first moments that i was actually afraid that he could eventually be president but what about russia you know i mean it's like I, I know that there's a groundswell i know that he has this base i mean the numbers don't lie he's got this like you know this this core base it's not a huge amount of people relative to the total population of the of america um but it's it's they're not they won't budge 
Uh, and I look at his late surge in, uh, I think it's like Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin especially. I've been reading about, uh, you know, Russia and the work that they, uh, I think they did in terms of uh, micro-targeting voters and hacking into social media and whatnot. Like, do you think that... Do you think that there really was a big enough groundswell to to, to uh, really elect a guy, or it feels to me like there was a criminal activity that pushed it over the top? Am I am I just dreaming? No, not at all. I I, I am a firm believer that uh, Russia not only helped Donald Trump, but I mean, starting in the summer of 2016, I started hearing from people, uh, particularly inside the Trump campaign, that they believed that there was uh, collusion with Russia. Um, I don't know that we will ever know the extent to which they interfered with the election. I know that there are rumors out there. There are things that I've read that have made the hair on the back of my neck stand up. Um, there are, again, tons and tons of hearsay. And so I, I, I firmly believe that there was there was collusion interference. I, I don't think we'll ever know exactly how much there was or to what effect. But I, I, I think you're right. I, I think that it wasn't just the groundswell. I think I don't think that this would have happened if it wasn't for the interference of the Russian government. And I mean, and like the, one of the funniest tweets of the year, I think, is when uh, it's kind of sad, funny was when D- Donald Trump Jr. Basically, uh, he, not even basically, he confessed to collusion on Twitter. He tweeted it out and, and said there was a Russian spy in the meeting. He met with them to discuss collusion. I mean, it was all very explicit. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm getting ready to laugh here because there was actually a weird conspiracy theory that came up out of that, that I was having an affair with the Russian spy. And every time I think about it, I just <laughs> shake my head at how ridiculous this this environment is. No, they 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 could not have been more comically inept at trying to hide what they have done. I mean, Jared Kushner tried to open up a line within the Russian embassy straight to the Kremlin, which is which is just you have to shake your head and scream. And But then we live in this environment where we have such fractured attention spans and the media has to chase every story because that's how it works now that none of this sticks. And so you actually have so many things that have gone wrong with Donald Trump. And it's not just scandals, but it's it's out and out malfeasance. And, and it's every single day that it, it just all comes together and it never, ever sticks. And, and it's, it's enough to make you start to lose your grip on reality because you look at it and you say, there it is. It's right there. Do something about it. But then you have to rely on a Republican Congress that is completely um, reliant on this person to try and pass their agenda, even though they can't pass their agenda. Um, you know, so we have we have this situation. It's like a stalemate, and we're all just waiting on this thing to come to a head. And it should have come to a head a long time ago. It should have come to a head on day one when he called Mexicans rapists. It should have come to a head a million times since then. That's what's so disorienting about it. I don't. I mean, you just said it. I'm going to repeat. You know, I'm going to repeat you. But it's uh, it bears repeating. It's completely insane. Uh, this reality that we're living in. Yeah. And, and, you know, I actually, I just taught the United States constitution and the declaration of independence, um, last week. And we have a system that, you know, was brought about in the 18th century. They never imagined a lot of things that we're dealing with. Now we have a system that, um, we've all agreed in good faith 
to adopt. We've all agreed that we'll play within the rules of these things. And again, it's like a couple of kids playing make-believe. It only works so long as you agree to play by the rules that you have made up. The moment that somebody comes along and not only – like we, we always assume that if someone's running for president, they're running because they're a patriot, because they have – uh, the the best of the country in their interest. We we think they're going to be honest. Maybe they'll lie here and there for spin, but we want to believe in the content of their character. When you have a person who comes along who doesn't believe in any of those principles, they can just trample everything because the system relies on honor. The system relies on you to play by the rules as they are put down. And what we're seeing is a very a very potent postmodern approach to politics that, quite frankly, an 18th century document and, and the ideals that led to the founding of this country were not ready for and, and we're still not ready for. I mean, the thing I tell people all the time is we're incredibly lucky that our first fascistic president is inept and incompetent. Right. We're so lucky that everything that he does is so see through that only 30 percent of the population believes it. Um, but what happens when someone follows Donald Trump's playbook and they have an ideology and they're competent and all they do is just continue what he has done, except for they have an idea and they have a focus. And I think it's it's exposed this glaring flank in, in our country that I, I don't think that we necessarily knew is there earlier. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, you hear a lot of people talk about like how this presidency is testing the strength, the strengths and limitations of our institutions. Like, will the institutions uh, that are supposed to check his power, will they hold? And that's congressional. That's the judiciary. You know, like, how do you feel about that? Are you, do you feel like the, that they're passing the stress test? You know, I again, this this goes back to. You know, we we should consider ourselves so lucky. Um, you know, when we had this recent attempt to repeal, um, you know, the affordable health care, um, we, we, we watched the Republican Party, which is basically at war with itself. It's basically two to three separate parties that are under the same umbrella. So they're engaged in their own civil war that will probably split the party at some point or another if it hasn't already. We are so lucky that they weren't able to get their ducks in a row to do that, right? And so we have basically tiptoed through a minefield and we've come out on the other side. The problem is we have another minefield. And I have no idea what would happen if we had a competent president who behaved like this and a competent Congress who supported him or her. Um, if, if we go into that situation, I think we have already shown that this government has basically been bought and sold into giving up its principles. If, if we were to obey what the government is supposed to be, perhaps they could restrain a person like that. But we don't really behave like that anymore. We don't really have a, a government that, that runs by those rules anymore. We now have a for-profit government that basically exists to make money for itself and basically exists to help its donors. And so we do not have the right situation to deal with an existential threat. Um, right now, we're biding our time and hoping we come out well on the other end of the other minefield. But um, I haven't seen anything so far to believe that that's necessarily the case. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, 
a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. What about like a political response to this presidency? Like, let's say that uh, Trump either resigns or is impeached, that this thing comes to a head and he's removed from office and that in 2020 or sooner, uh, I guess 2020 would be the soonest you could get a, a Democrat into office or somebody from the progressive wing. Like, what would be the ideal political response to this presidency? Is there something we could do legislatively to guard against the possibility? Is there something we, you know what I'm saying? Like, what can we do to uh, to make a, an appropriate and proportionate correction to the uh destruction that has been that has been um what's the word i'm looking for visited upon our constitution and upon our um our norms our you know our norms of decency our governmental norms and so on and so forth that's a great question and and the problem here is i i think that there are uh, a few things that have to be considered before you answer that so number 1 if donald trump doesn't serve his full term uh, if he is removed from office by an act of Congress or, you know, or he resigns or something along those lines, um, we now have a powder keg in this country. We have a group of people who have been fed a narrative that um, there's a coup on, that they're trying to get rid of him. And if Donald Trump is removed from office and he is their hero, he is their avatar, these people have been preparing for a new civil war for over 30 or 40 years. So we could be looking at a real, real problem. Do you think so? Do you, you think that really could happen? People would just take up arms and go into the streets and start shooting? Yeah, I, I do, unfortunately. Um, a lot of the research I've done both for the book and in my reporting has shown me that this is a group of people that are more than ready to be violent. They have the means. They have been training themselves. The, you know, it, it's almost like going to the grocery store, buying all of the food for Thanksgiving, and then when Thanksgiving comes, you just don't serve any food. You're just like, well, why go, why make food? They have prepped for this. They have gotten ready for this. They are champing at the bit for this. They talk about it constantly, and and they they want it really, really bad. So that is one scenario, and that is really, really bad. What do they want? What do they want? They like they want to what reinstall Trump? They want what do they want? You know, I, I don't know. I, I really don't because there's never an end game. Um, again, I have relatives like this. I have people in my family who talk about armed insurrection. I have people who, when you sit around the holiday table, they talk about how best to shoot um, United Nation troops, right? Because they imagine the new world order is going to come stomping down down the road. This is what um, this is what's happening at a Thanksgiving dinner table in Linton, Indiana. 
<laughs> quite a few of them actually um yeah you know these are people who are stockpiling weapons they are talking about the new world order and they are being told by people like alex jones they're being told by people like breitbart they're being told by these far right websites that that's what's going on matter of fact fox news has started to have a lot of people on who talk about quote-unquote coups so we got to get through that first of all um the next person who comes in i i, I think that you have to look at a lot of problems that are very, very complicated that I don't think this government is interested in taking care of. You have Citizens United, which is basically a legal way for people to buy or rich people, billionaires to buy politicians. Um, you know, we got things like term limits that really need to be enforced. Wait, We've I, got, got, I got to stop you. Yeah. And, I, and I don't mean to because I, I know you're on a good run, but I, I really think we need to, to slow down and put under a microscope money in politics because uh, one of the people in this whole uh, Trump narrative who is enormously influential, but who doesn't get, I don't think, enough attention is Robert Mercer, mm -hmm. who is the money man, right? He's financing all of this, uh, all of these te uh, technology projects in the Trump universe, correct? Like, do I have a do I have him right? Yeah, absolutely you do. And then we've got other people like Peter Thiel who are obviously pushing a lot of money towards things like silencing um, the freedom of the press. You know, we got um, um, the the casino magnate who – Anderson, I believe his name is. Uh, Sheldon who, Adelson. Adelson, yes. Adelson who is, um, you know, basically buying up newspapers and that are, are critical of him and, and giving money to basically anyone who's willing to carry his agenda. And, and you know, quite frankly, Trump is one of these people too. You know, he, he would say at these debates, I know about this stuff because I did it. And it's completely true. He understands that politicians are for sale. Like every good billionaire and every good millionaire understands you find yourself a politician who can take care of the levers of power and and that's one of the largest problems in this country is that we have this unchecked balance of power that leads to not just politicians who will count out of these people, but politicians who are straight up crooked and subservient to them. And I think that is one of the largest problems in this country. Well, and let's talk about uh, media responsibility. Because you think, you know, uh, it's a it's a weird quandary for me because I believe in freedom of the press. I believe in freedom of speech. Uh, I, you know, I'm 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 100 percent there. But I look at the Fox Newses of the world. I look at the Breitbart's of the world to a lesser extent, but especially Fox News, because it's a major network. And, you know, way too much of the time. It is functioning as Russian state television, you know, the American equivalent of Russian state television. They're putting crazy people like Sean Hannity on the air. And to be fair, uh, I do think that uh, Mike Wallace and Shep Smith, that's right, right? Shepard Smith, yep. that, like those guys, um, you know, I think it's it's arguable to say they're, they're conservative journalists, you know, and who are doing real journalism. So I don't want to say that all 100 percent of Fox News is this way, but way too much of it is. And it's a big problem in my head. Like, how do we manage the uh, legislation or the regulation of our news media? There's got to be some kind of enforced responsibility because these people are just running roughshod over so much of our population, feeding them nonsense, and it's dangerous. Yeah, and, and that's one of the major parts of the book, actually, is um, that I wrote, is this construction of the right-wing 
alternate reality. And and Fox News and, uh, of course, um, syndicated radio shows like Rush Limbaugh and that whole group um, created this situation where people could basically seal themselves up in a reality where they never have to listen to the opposition whatsoever. And the reason this happened was because under Ronald Reagan, um, the FCC revoked something called the Fairness Doctrine. And a lot of people um, sort of misunderstand what the Fairness Doctrine was. But the Fairness Doctrine originally said that if you were going to air an opinion, you at least needed to make an attempt to air another opinion. It didn't mean they needed as much time as the one opinion you wanted to have, but there had to be a dissenting voice. Um, That got taken away. There were also other regulations that um, said you couldn't own so many television shows, so many newspapers, so many radio affiliates. Those got done away with. So what you had was a um, you had a, a, a cognizant decision to create this echo chamber that Fox News has been pushing since 1994, I believe. And and basically, you have a situation where Roger Ailes, the founder of Fox News, who was the person who pushed what's called the Southern Strategy within the Republican Party, which race-baited, which manipulated people using racist ideals and racist thoughts, um, basically turned his network into a large propaganda piece that was meant to keep white viewers afraid of minorities and foreigners and, and also women's liberation, of course, because let's not forget the sexist aspects of that of that network. And so you actually had this this network that flaunted the exact opposite of what was supposed to happen over the airwaves in America. So if we're going to have a conversation about that, I, I, I'm with you. I, I believe in free speech, and, and I find myself wondering how something like Fox News is supposed to be reined in. But things like the fairness doctrine and the idea of, of networks as being like utilities that are able to go out there and do these kinds of things, there used to be means to keep them at least somewhat honest, and those are completely gone now. Well, and I also think a, a related point is that, you know, back in the days of uh, Walter Cronkite or whatever, there were, what, three or four channels on your television. And the networks, I think, financed the news as as a kind of public service. They weren't in it for profit in the way that they are now. Now it's about clicks. It's about viewers. It's about ad buys. It's about keeping people hooked on narratives, whether it's about like a missing blonde girl in Aruba or it's Donald Trump, which I think is the it's it's that sort of media behavior taken to its extreme. He's the greatest media narrative in American history, maybe, you know, this whole thing. It's it's, you know, for however sickening it may be uh, to you and I, it is uh, it's hard to turn away from. It is. And, and, you know, I've called it the, the largest reality television show in the world. I mean, you know, when we watch this thing, we, we sort of lack the ability to actually talk about it, right? Like we compare it to House of Cards. We compare it to Game of Thrones. We, we always talk about it as if it's a fiction and it's become a fiction. It, these networks can't help themselves. Um, I was looking at the numbers for the book and I think CNN gave Trump somewhere in the area of like $4 billion worth of free advertising as he ran for president. And the reason being was they could just show him live and people watched, right? It's the old Howard Stern idea of I watched and tuned in because I wanted to see what he was going to say next. They can't help themselves. Um, this is the rising tide that, that lifts all boats. They can't help it because of the system that's been created, again, is about profit. Well, and what, what – okay, so with this in mind, 
uh, you know, and I, I guess this gets back to critical thinking and to, and to education and to the mental uh, challenge that is life in America today, you know, like really trying to become your own uh, filter, your own media critic. You know, who who is worth watching on television? Who do you watch and enjoy? Who is worth reading? You know, for people listening, like who do you recommend? Well, I, I, I think... I think I'm a little hard to answer that question because, you know, I, I consider myself, um, you know, part of media criticism or whatever. So I watch everything. Like I, I watch a lot of Sean Hannity simply to understand what the sickness is doing, right? Like how the, how the narrative is going to be changed or whatever. Uh, but for me, I mean, it's going to sound partisan, but I think MSNBC does an amazing job. I, I think that you have people over there who are actually interested in getting at what the truth is. Um, I have been really impressed by what Jake Tapper has done at CNN as well. Um, these are also the times that I think it's important to support um, independent media. Democracy Now! has been questioning politics for as long as they've been on the air, and I think that they do a pretty incredible job of actually calling the task um, what has has led to the problem we're experiencing now. So, um, how is your health? And I say, <laughs> I, I say this sincerely because I've gone through periods of my life where I've watched uh, a lot of Fox News to try to understand what is, you know, the pathology of what's happening there, and to try to get, you know, it, like to sincerely try to have some degree of empathy for that point of view. I want to get inside it as much as I can to try to understand it, and I find myself. Uh, not, you know, feeling angered, feeling edgy, feeling unwell. Uh, you know, do you have that? Do you have concerns about that? Well, um, you know, I, I, I told this story also in the book, but I, when Glenn Beck had his Fox News show, which was a genesis for a lot of what we're seeing with Donald Trump, uh, I watched every single episode of that, I think, over a two-year period. I don't think I missed a single episode because I used to tell people, they'd be like, why are you subjecting yourself to that? And it's it's what I told them was – if you go in the bar and a dangerous person comes in the bar, you don't turn your back on them. You want to make sure what they're up to, right? So I paid a lot of attention to that. And, you know, it goes back to Hannity, which if you watch Hannity or you listen to Alex Jones, you can pretty much guess what the narrative is going to be over the next couple of days because they telegraph the whole thing. As far as my own health, um, when I started covering this election, um, so I, I, I published a few, like, collections of short stories and a lot of them were kind of nihilistic like I was sort of suffering with you know like a writer does I was suffering with like depression and self-doubt and all those things I was trying to figure out if I thought that the world was fundamentally good or fun fundamentally bad and you know I struggled with a lot of this and when I got to covering this campaign. I was definitely sort of wrestling with that idea. And the more that I went to these Trump rallies and I saw this ugliness and I, and I saw this hatred and this rage, and the more that I watched the country sort of accept it, I sort of had to come to terms with being more optimistic. I couldn't, I couldn't sink into the pessimism or the nihilism because the, it, it was too easy to do that. And so I actually had to make sort of a, um, like a conscious decision that I was going to start seeing the world in a better way. So my, my health that way has improved, but that's, inter still, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of had to make that decision because I mean, I was, I was going to slide into it. I, I, there was a point I was at a, a, a Trump rally in Greensboro, North Carolina, and I was hearing some of the most 
raucous, awful stuff I ever could have imagined. And I walked out and I was like, oh my God, this is the country I'm living in. I feel like this is like the early 1930s of Germany and I'm starting to see what's formulating here. And I decided, I was like, I have to either face this thing and believe in the idea of hope or I'm just going to cease to exist. There's just no way I could keep going like that. Good God. Yeah. And and what about like the moments of real fear? I mean, you talk about being in these rallies. You talk about people threatening your life. You talk about all the bullshit you've had to put up with. Uh, was there ever a moment when you felt unsafe when you're at one of these things and you felt like because I mean, I remember seeing the, the footage of the journalists like sort of in the pen at these rallies and people just screaming uh, you know, screaming at them and giving them the finger and stuff like that. Were you in those pens? No. And that's one of the reasons I think I was able to sort of understand Trump um, a little bit earlier than some other people did. Um, I did my reporting from the crowd. Um, a lot of the reporters would be pinned up. And so they wouldn't actually uh, get a chance to really experience this. Later on was when the people started actually screaming at them and getting in their faces as this thing uh, gained strength. Was I afraid? I, I, I got... I got approached a lot of times once my name started to get known a little bit and my face started getting known, I would get approached by these people um, at these rallies and confronted by them. What bothered me the most was, I mean, I, I had a lot of threats in my real life. I had people show up at my house. I had people try and break into my house. Um, I had people you know, like sending crazy things in the mail to me at my work, like these like, you know, it, like ransom notes and stuff like that. I've had people show up in my house unannounced. Um, I've had unbelievable threats towards myself and my family and just really, really specific, awful stuff. Um, the sad truth of it is that if you do anything or you experience anything for a long enough time, it just sort of becomes your reality. Um, I remember my house, somebody tried to break into my house one night and, uh, I was, I was out somewhere shopping and my alarm went off at my house and I came home and I found, you know, my window had been messed with. And I just remember fixing the window and then bringing my stuff inside and, and it wasn't even like a concern anymore. It was just like, this is my life now. And so in a way, I sort of had to acclimate to that. But I think that's a sad commentary on what this country is right now, right? I mean, so many people in so many different ways are being threatened, and they just have to accept that this is part of their everyday life. And, and obviously, a lot of people have had to deal with that, whether it's racism or sexism. You know, they've had to accept the, the, the danger of it. But I, I think the fact that they've had to accept it and, and everybody in the political front has to accept that, I think that speaks to a, a really bad fever that's going on in this country. Uh, have you ever met anybody who has been a Trump supporter, like an earnest, true blue Trump supporter who has changed and who has realized that, you know, he is not well or that his ideas are not uh, healthy for the country? Like, have you ever met anybody who's done a 180 uh, like or vice versa? I can't imagine it happening from where, where somebody on the left has been like, you know what? I'm actually going to get on the Trump train, but I, I suppose it could cut that way, too. Like, do people ever change their political stripes? Well, I've seen one group of people who change in this whole situation, and that is um, what I would call traditional Republicans. And these are people, um, you know, I, I wrote this, I was like, you know, these are the people who show up at GOP events at fairs, and, you know, they wear like elephant pins, and, you know, they were really, really fond of Ronald Reagan, and that's part of their identity. There are some of them 
I, who I've met who have started to understand that there is a problem here. Um, I've, I've talked to people on that front who now regret voting for him. And I've talked to other people who are like, I just wanted someone to be angry for me. And I never realized what that anger could turn into or how sort of unhinged this person is or how dangerous this person is. So I have seen a group of people who have been Trump supporters who have, who have changed. Uh, but that's not all of them. I, I would say of, and I always put the number at like 30%, which is what I've seen in the, the polls I've seen. So 30% of the country probably supports Trump. Of that 30%, I think that like maybe 10% of them might be reachable, might be, um, might be okay to sort of reach out to or sort of bring back into the fold. But for the most part, this is a group of people who, who aren't going to leave Trump. They are programmed and they are, they are locked and loaded with him for lack of a better term. Well, it's funny that you say that because uh, my dad is a, was a registered Republican my whole life. Uh, that, you know, but he's always been sort of independent minded. He's voted uh, for Democrats here and there, but he's largely Republican until this election, he would not vote for Donald Trump. He he wrote in, uh, I believe, John Kasich. Uh, and then after Charlottesville, he uh, he changed his affiliation, which I was immensely proud of him for. Uh, I don't know. I was very moved by it, you know, and, and I've always had a good relationship with him. But he is one of those traditional Republicans that I think you speak of who uh, couldn't get behind it or, you know, sensed that something had gone off the rails. And, um, you know, I, I guess along similar lines, cause I struggle with this, I struggle with politics a lot generally because it can bring out the best in people. And I think it, and, and it can sometimes bring out the best in me, but it can also bring out the worst in me. I can get frustrated with it. Uh, you can get, it's easy to get wound up, you know, and I think, uh, you see evidence, you see evidence of it all over the place. And I was listening to, uh, you know, a lecture by a Buddhist nun, uh, which I do this kind of thing a lot. I listen to <laughs> Buddhist lectures. It's a kind of counterbalance, <laughs> counterbalance all the political Twitter I ingest. But she was talking, you know, she was talking about someone asked a question. It was kind of like a Q&A. And the person was asking about how to protest, uh, you know, in political situations. Like, how, is it OK to protest peacefully and to engage? And, you know, what's the where's the line? And I'm going to paraphrase this badly, but the nun said something to the effect of, well, listen, you know, if you're protesting against a group of people, if you have a, diff a different view than they do, um, but you don't come at them from a perspective of some kind of inclusion and love, if you only seek to differentiate yourself, if you only seek to uh, call them out or demonize them rather than recognizing that they are merely giving expression to human uh, ills, human um, weaknesses, human delusions, misperceptions, whatever you want to call them that exist within all of us, then you're simply the other side of their coin and you're perpetuating that cycle. And, you know, I hope I did a good enough job of saying that, but it hit me in the chest when she said that, because I feel like sometimes, um, you know, especially in the context of Twitter, that's what I'm doing. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, how do, how in the world do and you talk about like the 10% of Trump supporters that you think are reachable, like maybe that's the the project that would be time better spent is like trying to find a way to get through to those people and just say, Hey, listen, 
you know, uh, we're, we're, we're both human beings. We're both American citizens. Like we, we gotta, we gotta be better than this. Am I, am I talking like somebody who is Pollyanna-ish or, or naive? <laughs> well, first of all, I, I, I think that's beautiful. I, I mean, if, if you could tell me where to listen to that, I, I think that's gorgeous. And I think it's, I think it's dead on, but it's also antithetical to the culture that we live in. Um, I, I, I think that what we've seen in America, and, and this has to do, you know, I, I, you brought up Twitter, which I think is absolutely important in this conversation. It's what social media does. And social media has more or less, it, it's a very quiet marketing tool, right? Like it's all based on advertising. And so what it does is it tells us to make our own marketing profile, to identify ourselves and our brand. So it has turned into an America where the, the, the back end of that is we are now liberal or conservative, right? You're now a liberal or you're a Trump supporter. And it's almost like being the fan of a team, right? Like, right. The, like, like I'm a Cubs fan. And, you know, if I'm going to go to the bar and there's a Cardinals fan there, which is the Cubs rival, then I'm going to sit there. I'm not going to sit there and say nice things about the Cardinals, right? Because it's a competition. There's no there's no shared ground here. We obviously see the world from different perspectives. Social media also has an added level, which is that it does not reward nuance. Um, any tweet that you write is automatically going to be dissected, misunderstood, taken to its illogical or logical extremes. This is not uh, this is not a basis for communication. And we we for too long we think that it is a stand-in for reality when it is anything but. It's it's digested reality. It's it's guttural, visceral reactions. It has nothing to do with what real life is. But unfortunately, we've now taken that mindset and those strategies and ideas, and we've now put them into action in the real world. And so as a result, we're not able to even share a society anymore. And, and for us to sit here and talk about reaching out to that 10% of Trump supporters, um, I can tell you as someone who, who engages on Twitter frequently, Anytime that I talk about talking to these people that we could hopefully bring back into our fold, I'm told that um, you shouldn't do that, that these people are irredeemable, these people are <clears throat> obviously awful people or else they wouldn't be over there. And so we can't have a conversation that is actually about talking to one another because it has become so toxic and and they have become so quote-unquote irredeemable that even saying that we should have a conversation is is almost tantamount to betraying your own your own uh worldview and and so we're we're not in a position where we can do that unfortunately and i don't know how we get back there as a culture and i think that particular notion cuts both ways i mean i don't think the right would permit you know, I can see people on the right saying that if you talk to these uh, progressives, you know, you're you're betraying us. And I can see people on the left doing exactly the same thing. Like if somebody were to intimate on Twitter that you're supposed to reach out and try to, you know, try to find a way to communicate with these people as human beings, I could see people getting um, knocked, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, so there, there's a chapter in the book where um, it was after I, I started getting all these death threats and, and people trying to get me fired, right? Uh, I reached out and I found this Republican that I didn't know. 
Um, I'd never met him, and, and through um, an intermediary, we set up a road trip. We drove up to Cincinnati, Ohio, to see a Hillary Clinton rally, which was seven hours there and seven hours back. And we talked, and uh, we agreed on basically nothing. Um, you know, our, our political stances were completely apart. But once he started to understand that I was coming at my politics from a place of good intention, and once I understood he was coming from his politics in a place of good intention, we could agree on some small, little, tiny things. I think before like we got off the road, we agreed on like nominal gun control that I think would make a little bit of a difference. You know what I mean? And But we had to drive 14 hours. Plus, I was coming at it from a place of privilege. Like, you probably shouldn't get in the car with a complete stranger. Like, you're vulnerable. And we can't all do that. We can't all drive 14 hours with somebody to get to know them. But... Those are the kinds of steps that I think could make it better, but I don't even think that that is prescribable. That is that is something that could possibly work in some places, but obviously isn't in others and could possibly get people hurt in other times. What, what do you think of Hillary and her candidacy? Like, I know that most of your, I mean, I'm, I'm presuming that most of your attention as a journalist was on the Trump campaign and documenting that phenomenon, but uh, you also, I'm sure, were paying attention to what Hillary and her campaign were doing. There's been a lot of uh, analysis, obviously, and some hand wringing and all that kind of stuff. But like, what's your take on her and what happened with her campaign and, uh, you know, how her supporters um, have dealt with uh, the defeat? Yeah, um, I I spent a little bit of time following uh, Hillary Clinton and going to her rallies and talking to people inside of her campaign. And I I think what we saw was um, she ran what you would say would be a traditional campaign, right? We had these rallies, we had these speeches that, you know, we have heard in the past. And she basically came across a new kind of campaign. and, And it didn't work because we had one person, and not to mention Russia, not to mention um, the fact that he had created his own reality bubble, but she ran across a person who, again, went above and beyond the rules, broke them, didn't pay any attention to them. That's hard to compete with when you're still going with the rules. So she basically had this situation where she could never get control of the narrative because he was either involved in a scandal or criticizing her of something new. And so she was never able to roll out policy initiatives. And so no one was ever able to really say what that campaign was about because Donald Trump was getting all of the definition. Um, we also had, and, and this is one of the major cruxes of the book, is we also have a split now in the Democratic Party. We have, um, you know, and we saw it with Bernie Sanders and we saw it with Hillary Clinton. We have one side that is solely focused on economic populism and we have another side that economic populism is part of it, but it doesn't get the entire sheen. And it also talks a lot about um, inclusiveness and progressivism. So when we have like Michigan, we have Wisconsin, we have Pennsylvania, you have a lot of voters who in the past were labor people. They were um, they were open and receptive to economic populism. Um, And so as a result, they were they had expectations that that's what a Democrat would talk to them about. And instead, in those states, whenever um, the the Clinton campaign was going after Donald Trump, what we always saw was um, he's unfit to be president. He's vulgar. He's offensive. Um, you know, we, we can't have this. But in fact, in Wisconsin, in Michigan, in Pennsylvania, and, and I know back in Indiana, I know my family's like this too. When he was being called offensive and vulgar, 
the people hearing that a lot of them were offensive and vulgar themselves. Um, you know, the things that Donald Trump would say are not things that were new to me. I heard a lot worse coming from my family. And so when the idea was that he was unfit to be president, I think a lot of these people heard the idea, if he's unfit to be president, well, so am I, and so are my kids, and so are my families. And so we actually had, and, and I've talked to people inside the Clinton campaign who have confirmed this, there was a discussion about how to approach Donald Trump, and the idea was to approach him as, do you want him to have nuclear weapons? Do you want his finger on the button? When what really could have been, I think, instrumental in beating him in some of these states would have been focusing on his um, his idea or, or his character as the your fired boss, the billionaire with gold-plated rooms and, and jets with his names on it. And, and I think that that probably would have been more effective than the other strategy, which might have been used in different markets. And I, I think there's a lot of stuff obviously we can look back on this campaign there's already been books written about it about what went wrong in this campaign but i think, I think there, the... there was a book called what went wrong right <laughs> yeah there's what went wrong there's <laughs> shattered there's all this there's my book the people are going to rise off the waters on your shore just got to get that in yeah uh, you know you have a lot of these books that are focused on all of these different things that could have gone better but we had a perfect storm in donald trump we had a guy who wouldn't play by the rules who was shameless and also we had him with a, what we, you would call a new campaign facing a more traditional campaign. And so uh, I, I think in the long run, I think that's what went wrong. What's your, what's your take on Bernie? Well, so Bernie Sanders, I think, was really good at speaking at far left uh, populism. I, I think that he caught fire because he was saying things that maybe wasn't getting through in other Democratic messaging, whether it was Hillary Clinton or a lot of other people, quite frankly. Um, but I think in the end, what you saw with him was a lot of his supporters who weren't traditional Democrats. I, I watched uh, his movement, so to speak, and this is part of the book as well. I watched them not only turn against the Democratic Party, but turn completely against Hillary Clinton. I mean, there were riots outside the Democratic National Convention that I got caught in the middle of. And you suddenly saw them start saying a lot of things about Hillary Clinton that Trump supporters did. So there was a lot of this rage that was being directed. And when there wasn't anywhere to direct it anymore, it sort of consumed itself. But yeah, that's I, a good I, point. That's a really good point is that uh, there is a rage and anger and uh, rooted in, um, you know, as you say, the economic anxieties uh, of our time, I think that Bernie spoke to and that Trump spoke to, like there is a common thread there. They were talking in you know, very different ways about the same thing to the same people or to a lot of the same people. Yeah. And when I talk to, um, and, and again, this isn't all of Bernie's supporters, right? Like we're talking about a group of people who, um, probably weren't a part of the democratic party before and have probably left since and probably a, a sliver of people who were and, and then left. When I was at the democratic national convention and I was talking to Bernie supporters who were protesting and then later rioting, um, they saw no difference between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. Um, they, they thought that they were equal. They saw um, absolutely no problem with them. And then when eventually Clinton got the nomination, they started saying really, really awful things about her while rioting. And then I talked to a lot of people who decided they were going to vote for Donald Trump. See, OK, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm a good a good case study here because I supported Bernie in the primary in California where uh, 
I don't know. I felt like I was safe. I could say, like, listen, I really am behind a lot of the economic populism. His uh, attention to the poor really moved me. I just felt like, and I still feel like, there is a huge problem in terms of, uh, you know, uh, income inequality and in terms of opportunities for people to uh, move up and down the social ladder. And, you know, it's the American dream. I feel like it's it's been badly damaged. And he moved me on that front. And I really loved the way he came out unapologetically and didn't equivocate, didn't try to uh, play to the middle or whatever. And so I supported him. Uh, and then I happily voted for Hillary Clinton in the general because it was a no-brainer. And I never really... Uh, had any strong antipathy. I, I mean, I, I quite liked her uh, candidacy, especially by comparison, though I do find sometimes, and this happens in all politics, um, you know, but uh, I, I, do, I do find sometimes that people on the left uh, in the Democratic Party have an unwillingness to see any kind of criticism of her as valid. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I guess that's kind of an obvious point. A lot of times people fall in love with their candidates, but I don't know. I, I, I can't understand the Bernie supporters who uh, would acquit, would you know would consider Hillary and, and Trump to be equal. That that's nonsense. Well, you know, one of the things that that in, in, in America is really bad at context. We we are very very bad at, at, at figuring out how the past affects the present. Um, we forget that Hillary Clinton had a really, really contentious campaign against Barack Obama. And we had um, a lot of hard feelings that came from that. And there are still people who hold that against Hillary Clinton. And I think a lot of these people who definitely flocked for Bernie but would not go with Clinton were people who were still upset about how the 2008 campaign went down. And so I, I think there were a lot of people who were still upset about that, but they were also tired of, of, you know, the quote unquote politics as usual. They were looking for an avatar who wouldn't look like a normal candidate, who wouldn't speak like a normal candidate. And Hillary Clinton was one of the most like, um, recognizable and sort of, um, polished traditional campaigners that we've seen. I mean, um, her operation was slick. Right. Whenever I went to these rallies, I mean, they looked and sounded and felt like a political rally in 2016. When you went to see Bernie, it felt like somebody just wandered on stage and started screaming the things <laughs> you wanted someone to scream. And there was actually this rally. The first one I ever saw him at was in 2015. It was in a uh, UAW hall in Iowa. And he just he came up and he just started banging the lectern and yelling to the point where a speaker blew out. And he just didn't stop. He just kept yelling as they like tried to put up a new speaker behind him. And he had no interest in stagecraft. And I think for a lot of people who were looking for an alternative, that was incredibly attractive. Well, so I, I, yeah. I, I just want to say, because like you, you're making a, uh, you're alluding to um, like the word authenticity, I think. And I think that with Hillary Clinton uh, in particular, because of the length of time that she has spent on the main stage of American politics, the amount of media coverage she's obviously generated, the amount of um, target practice that the uh, Fox Newses of the world have taken uh, trying to assassinate her character, you know, that does uh, that does damage to a person in the arena of public perception. And it make it can make a person seem and, and you know, too, like just being on the main stage and being a politician seems to uh, engender 
a, uh, you know, I don't know. It, you, people, politicians sort of are always uh, trying not to give away the game. They are reversing course. They are, you know, if you, if you spend enough time there, you're going to do things that, uh, and you're going to leave a paper trail that, um, you know, they might not all look so good all these years later. And so I think people are sort of starved for somebody. And, and again, this, this gets to maybe some of the appeal of Trump uh, by somebody who just kind of shot from the hip or they felt like was being like wholly themselves and not playing by those traditional rules of politics and political media. I couldn't agree more. And you also have in Hillary Clinton, you have a person who for decades has been, you know, um, derided by right wing media. When she was running in the 2016 campaign in the primaries, she was not only dealing with uh, criticisms from Bernie Sanders and Martin O'Malley. There were seven or yeah, 17 Republicans who were all coming after her every single day to score political points. And based on um, the uh, Bill Clinton's former strategy, it used to be called speed kills. And the idea was you own the political narrative. And if someone attacks you, you attack back and you take control of the narrative. That doesn't work when you have 19 people coming after you because what you're constantly doing is you're modulating your message. And for years, she would respond to every single thing. We would watch one speech after another that would change on a dime. And so you never had a feeling um, with that you have a lot of these politicians who have stump speeches that don't change. It feels like they're constantly getting their narrative across. Well, you have Hillary Clinton who has to react to crowds of people who are coming after her. Um, I think she strengthened when she gained the nomination and she didn't have to deal with these crowds. But then all of a sudden you have this new narrative, this quote unquote crooked Hillary narrative that I think uh, Donald Trump used to his advantage, obviously, and basically consolidated the right while also using the interference of a, of a Russian political machine. So I, I think that's what we were looking at. Yeah, I mean, it's like so much. Uh, there's been a lot of attention, especially recently with Charlottesville placed on the issue of race and racism on uh you know, on the right and among Trump's uh, most fervent supporters. But when it comes to Hillary's candidacy, like uh, one of the other things that I think uh, America got to see um, in a not so pretty light is the misogyny, uh, you know, in our country and in our politics and the, to see the way that um, the country reacted to uh, a female candidate, the things that she uh, had to face and the uh, standards to which she was held. Um, it's well, they have every reason to be enraged. I mean, one of the things about Donald Trump is, and, and you look back on his public career, he is the embodiment of public racism and public misogyny. I mean, this person has figured out a way uh, to use every patriarchal, misogynistic thing possible against Hillary Clinton without just coming right out and saying these things, right? I mean, and, and obviously there were times where he would say, you know, he'd say she doesn't look like a president or she doesn't have the stamina or, you know, all of these different things they would lead up to talk about her illnesses or, or you know, any any number of, of attacks that he would have that would basically be right on the tip of his tongue where he could basically say, you can't vote for this person because she's a woman. Uh, he's done that with racism. He's done that with misogyny. And, and people have an absolute reason to be pissed off about this because they saw the worst of their country. They saw in him not only the racism and the misogyny that, that they knew was there, but they experienced on a daily basis. It was personified on a stage day in and day out. And now they have to look at it in the White House. 
So what about Twitter? Because Twitter factors into uh, the Trump candidacy and the Trump presidency pretty prominently. I know you're active on Twitter and have a pretty big following. And uh, I've gone back and forth. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm so all over the map with Twitter right now. Uh, I'm, I'm on board and I'm lately finding that it's a, in a lot of ways for me, it's an indispensable tool in terms of trying to understand what's going on. And particularly with news cycles moving as quickly as they do. And with like crazy stories breaking every minute, it seems like, uh, Twitter kind of covers the news in real time. So I find myself going to it for those reasons. I also find myself feeling like, well, this is, if this is Trump's turf, if, if this is his preferred platform, to try to spread his message, then maybe I can counter that in my little microscopic way uh, where I see fit. Like, where do you fall? Well, I mean, listen, I, I, I could talk about this for hours and, and I can get really deep in the weeds on this thing. I, I think about it too much. I, I, I think that Twitter in particular is sort of the collective unconscious of the country made real, made physical. Um, I think, you know, the idea of writing is taking thoughts from the head and putting them down and making them real on paper. And I think Twitter, because it publishes so quickly to everyone, is just our most base instincts being brought to life in, in real time. And I think that's the reason why Donald Trump is so successful is because he is, at the end of the day, one of the most shallow human beings that we have seen in public life. And so as a result, that instantaneous reaction that he can say anything he wants and not have to worry about it, not have to edit it, not have to really deal with its consequences, I think is really, really appealing for him. In that way, I think it's it's good for us to get news that way. But I think that we have seen that it has terrible effects on society. And I think that we've seen that it emboldens this sort of shallow thought. And I, I really don't know how to reconcile the two things because on one hand, it seems very useful. I mean, we've seen social media lead to democratic uprisings. But on the other hand, I think it's really, really dangerous because it leads to our base worst instincts. So what's the answer? You know, like that's like this gets back to this gets back to, I think, uh, the regulation of media versus uh, one's belief in free speech and freedom of expression. You know, like it's like, where's the line? You know, especially when you have people who are um, promoting, uh, you know, ideologies of hatred, which I guess includes our president at times, you know, like it's like. Uh, like what is what's the guy who runs Twitter, Jack? Like what's Jack? Yeah. What's Jack's responsibility? You know when there are like neo Nazis chirping on Twitter and attacking people verbally and and whatnot and threatening them. Uh, it gets it gets you know it gets tricky in my mind. I guess uh, you know in the most extreme cases it's a no brainer and you shut them down. But um, it feels like the thing is out of control and it's not. You know, you sometimes wonder, uh, is, is anybody at the wheel here? Like, do we do we need somebody to come in and, and be an adult and, and make people behave? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think, first of all, I think that Twitter has been incredibly irresponsible at, at shutting down, not just bullying, but harassment. I, I mean, uh, we have seen a lot of people get away with some really, really horrific things. Uh, to, to answer the, the broader question of where does this go or what happens, um, I, I have theories, but I'm not sure. I, I mean, the one thing I keep looking at in modern times is how every new technology and every new invention is more about the self. It's more about recognizing um, a person's own constructed reality. And, you know, we're, we're on the edge of uh, artificial reality. We're on the edge of, like, 
you know, um, watching our lives sort of get taken over by our own impulses and our own desires as opposed to shared society. So I think we're looking at the possibility that we're moving away from society, we're moving away from shared reality, and we're moving towards a more self-centered, um, self-focused existence. And, and what that looks like, I think, is the equivalent of somebody from the 17th century trying to figure out what a smartphone is. I, I think that we're watching a change that we don't even really have a grasp on on what it is. I think that's a bad, I mean, that strikes me as ominous to, to have, when, when everybody sort of crawls inside themselves and constructs their own reality, then it's, I don't understand how you have any kind of cohesion in society at all or any kind of feeling of, uh, shared reality, any kind of feeling of uh, shared experience or a, a common bond, you know? Yeah, I don't either. Um, but I, the other thing, so I, you know, I'm a fan of, of Chuck Klosterman. And Chuck Klosterman is always this contrarian who, when people say that things are bad, he's like, then, well, are they bad? So I, I, I look at this conversation and I, I think about, you know, we're, we're talking about like the shared reality versus no shared reality. And in the future, are we going to look at this as a bad thing? I have no clue because I, I don't really know how culture continues because my limited range of understanding what we become and who we're becoming is, is based on my life from 1981 to 2017, what I've experienced in that time. Um, I don't really know if we're going to be looking at, at politics in the future. I don't know if we're going to be looking at uh, ideology in the future. I don't know if we're going to, you know, have public spheres. I don't know if we're going to have uh, anything that we we normally have or that we have traditionally have. I, I really don't know what this is going to look like. And I feel like when we get to a point of crisis where we look at this and we say, well, how can this go on? I think the answer is usually going to be it's not going to go on. And, and so we're going to have some kind of big turnover, or some kind of big innovation, because I don't know how society as we knew it 10 to 20 to 30 years ago, I don't know how that goes on because it's, it's unrecognizable at this point. Okay, so now it's the perfect time for me to ask you, like, how the fuck does this thing end? <laughs> like, what's going to happen? Game it out. Does Mueller's investigation lead to uh, impeachment? Is he going to come? Like, is is uh, is Louise Mensch and uh, you know Claude Taylor have they have they discovered the uh, the secret? You know, like the Rosetta Stone to this whole thing. Like, are they all going down, or like what's going to happen? Well, uh, I, I don't know if I if I'd go that Rosetta Stone with, with Mensch and Taylor route. Um, you know, I, I think that I think that Mueller is going to find incriminating things simply because there are incriminating things. Again, I am a, I'm a firm believer that, that Russia and the Trump campaign colluded. I mean, I think we've seen proof of it already in, in public. Uh, the things we're finding behind scenes, particularly on the financial side, I think are, are, are going to be there. Will he be impeached? Um, I think we will know the answer to that in 2018. Um, the Republican Congress isn't going to do it as long as they think uh, they can sustain what they have with him. Um, a Democratic Congress, I think that's an entirely different ballgame. But if he's impeached, if he's removed from office, um, I, I, I think we're going to we're going to look at a, a really, really volatile situation. And, and that's my guess, unless he resigns. I mean, he could wake up tomorrow and say, I'm tired of this. I want to do something else. Well, that's uh, it. But that's part of the, the Trump playbook is that if things really start to close in or if he starts to really feel like, uh, his Republicans in Congress are about to turn on him. I feel like Trump could preemptively resign to declare victory, you know, as a way of preventing himself from suffering a humiliating defeat. You know, he could just say, 
I'm sick, or he could say, this is rigged. You know what I'm saying? All the different things that he would say, and then he'll walk out and declare victory. See, I, I also, I'm always afraid to ascribe strategy to Trump because the thing I found over and over and over again is he's making this thing up as it goes, right? This is all base level reaction. Everything he does is him just deciding that's what I'm going to do. And, and he, you know, he quote unquote, trusts his gut and, and he just does it. Whether or not he would walk away from it, I think also goes away from his character, right? Because he, his entire life has been never admitting a mistake and just always doubling down and, and hoping that time proves him right. So whether or not he would back away um, to save face, I don't know, because then I don't know if he understands the idea of saving face. I mean, this guy believes in himself to a degree that I, I don't think that we even fully understand yet. Yeah, but Trump's been interested in that. This is one of the things about him that I think is worth pointing out is that he didn't just suddenly get interested in politics in 2015 or whatever it was, mm -hmm. uh, you know, he's had an interest in, in national politics for a long time as a prospective candidate. He's been flirting with this for a long time for like 30 years. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, like to say that there's no such thing as strategy with him, I mean, I get, I get it. I mean, you know, the way that's certainly the way it often seems, uh, when you're watching him on the public stage, but like, are there people, maybe there are people behind the scenes, like I, like the Roger Stones and the Paul Manafort's, and the Mercers and the Bannons, you know, he's certainly got people around him who I think are capable of strategic thinking. Um, they have to be communicating with him. Like, I just wonder what in the hell those conversations look like. Like, what do things actually look like in the Oval Office? What do things look like when he's sitting, you know, in the, uh, the West Wing with his staffers and they're trying to figure out what's next? I mean, it's, it's a mystery to me. Well, my understanding uh, from my own reporting and, and from writing this book is that the way people approach Trump to get him to do things is you first have to make him think it's his idea. And he is very, very susceptible to um, suggestion. And so I think a lot of and it always ends up being like, who is the last person to talk to Trump? Who is the last person to get, get his ear? So, yeah, I think people are definitely in his ear. And I think that Steve Bannon, even though he's now out of the administration, I think he's one of the best at that and, and always has been. Um, but if I, if I had to guess in this situation, I think that you have a lot of people who are true believers who have their own reasons for being in this administration. And I think they're going to keep him in office as long as he can. What about voting rights? Because this to me seems like an issue that people on the left uh, should be paying more attention to because, you know, you talk about 2018 and you talk about potentially flipping one or both houses of Congress in a wave election as a way to check uh, President Trump. You know, all the enthusiasm in the world, all the, the political organizing in the world doesn't mean anything if uh, the vote is suppressed or if there's a legal hacking of voting machines. And I feel like this is a story that uh, the media is not doing a good enough job of covering. Like, And I don't think that the people uh, in the Democratic Party, our leadership, um, and I say our, I'm a registered independent, but, you know, the progressive left... <laughs> You know, like people need to talk about this. We need to know that our votes count and we, we need to know that our elections are legitimate. And after this last election in 2016, with Trump constantly talking about how it was rigged, which, by the way, is a textbook demonstration of uh, you Projection. know, his tell. Yeah, he, he basically accuses people of everything that he does. Like that's his M.O. You know, it's this very sort of like 
trans to me, it's a very, you know, transparent tell, but, um, you know, I, people need to feel secure in their vote. They, they first of all need to have a vote, but they also need to, to really feel secure in the idea that their vote counts, that the votes are be, being counted fairly. Like, why are we not seeing a movement or a campaign from conscientious uh, people in both parties for a um, for paper ballots as opposed to these digital machines that are very easy to hack? It's the same reason that we're not seeing a lot of talk about this in the media is because it's not a sexy story in terms of, of our cable news narrative. Um, this is one of the most important things that nobody talks about. And, you know, I've, I've talked to a lot of Democrats who are talking about the 2018 midterms and the things that they're talking about are, do we focus on Trump as being unstable? Do we focus on Russia? Do we focus on health care? And so we now have these campaigns and these narratives that have to be singular. They have to be focused as opposed to being broad and substantial. This is a giant thing, and it goes along with uh, voting rights, which have been infringed on in, in one state after another by Republicans who do nothing but try and limit who can vote and where they can vote. Then we have gerrymandering, which is as old as time, but has really become just totally absurd and has led to a dysfunctional Congress. Um, these are issues that we have to talk about as a country, and we have more or less stopped talking about the fact that we had a hacked election. Who knows how far it went or what it did, but we we can't even talk about it anymore. We we are so focused on all these other narratives that the subs the substantive day to day important issues are just being ignored. Who do you hope runs for the Democratic nomination in twenty twenty? That's a great question. Um, I mean, I, I actually am really enjoying seeing um, the guts that are being shown. Um, Kamala Harris, I think, daily um, puts her name on the line. I think Elizabeth Warren does as well. Um, if either one of them ran, I, I, I would be really interested to see what they could do against Donald Trump. Who who wins in 2020? <laughs> Tell me what's going to happen. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the other thing. I mean, this goes back to what you were saying about voting. Um, if we don't fix the voting system, if we don't figure out how to have a fair election, I really don't know at all. I mean, uh, there's no reason why Russia wouldn't go ahead and you know spend billions on this thing again. I mean, it paid dividends last time. There's no reason why you wouldn't step things up. I mean, if you get discovered, why not continue doing what you're doing? Um, but I, I think we're going to look at a, another contentious election. I don't think there's any way around that. And, and the result, I, I think, depends on what measures we take in the meantime. Are you going to cover it? Yeah, yeah. I, man, I was just thinking about that today. I'm going to start covering, I think, in twenty eight, late 2018, early 2019, because I think the 2020 election basically started, you know, in December of 2016. So these things just keep getting larger and more unwieldy. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm writing a book right now. And then I think one more book and then I'm going to cover the campaign and hopefully do a sequel to this one. Wow. Well, congratulations uh, on, on the new book, The People Are Going to Rise, and uh, I really thank you for taking the time to talk with me. Brad, this has been great. Thank you. Okay, folks, there you go. That is Jared Yates Sexton. His book is called The People Are Going to Rise Like the Waters Upon Your Shore, available now from Counterpoint Press. The People Are Going to Rise Like the Waters Upon Your Shore. You can find Jared 
online at jysexton.com. His Twitter handle is at jysexton. Thanks, as always, to Kill Rockstars for the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. This podcast has its own app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It's free. Go get the app. Get it on your phone. It's the best way to listen. New episodes automatically upload to the app as if by magic you can download episodes to listen to while you're offline. It's very easy. It's very useful. It's a useful tool. Get the app. It's free. If you want to throw a couple of bucks in the hat, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you want to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. So it's a it's a troubling time in this country. It's a difficult time. It feels like a pivotal moment. It's very frightening. It's very upsetting. It strikes me that uh, my father-in-law and his uh, patients. It's worth remembering. It's very easy to get wound up. It's very easy to fly off the handle. It's probably a good idea to uh, remain calm much as possible i'm not saying you know this is an it's an interesting point though it's like not saying ignore in injustice i think it's natural to be angered by injustice but it's like how you channel it i don't know it's hard it's hard to stay cool It was beautiful in Minnesota last week. It was, it was, you know, however difficult it was, it was also very beautiful up there. It's nice to be there. Nice to be with uh, my wife and kids, my, fa- my extended family on my wife's side. Nice to get to spend some time uh, around all that fresh water. It's very lush. Brings back a lot of memories for me, having grown up in uh, Wisconsin, at least uh, half of my youth. The first half of my youth was in uh, Milwaukee, and it's a very similar context. Like, not only culturally, but just in terms of the, uh, the trees, the smells, the flowers, the fauna. Or no, the flora. <laughs> and the fauna. Ah, uh, the fauna. The fauna.